You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I am Leanne Caldwell, anchor, Washington Post Live, and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Republican Senator from Maine, Susan Collins, and also Democratic Senator from New Hampshire, Jean Shaheen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are talking about a very important topic, which is the price of health care. Um, specifically with both of you, we're going to talk about the price of insulin, which is something that you both have been working on for a very long time. Just want to take a step back here and set the stage. Uh, we have a, according to the nonprofit RAND, the price of insulin in the U.S. is $98.70 compared to overseas, where it is $7.52 in the UK. So I'm going to go right to an audience question who gets at this. Uh, Bob Carey from DC asks, how much of this cost issue is related to manufacturer pricing, and how much is related to pharmacy benefit managers, also known as PBMs? and?" Uh, especially when PBMs allow brand name versus generic and copay amounts. So there's a lot in that question. So let's start with Senator Shaheen. Why do you think that the cost is so much more here in the United States? Well, it is the PBMs that have driven up the cost. Um, that's very apparent. And we are making some progress on this. We um, have finally said for people on Medicare, we're going to cap the out-of-pocket cost for insulin at $35. Um, and Senator Collins and I have legislation that would do that for everyone. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, would get at the underlying list price for, um, for insulin, which really hasn't changed as um, a drug very much in over 100 years since it was first discovered. And yet the price has gone up exponentially. So clearly, somebody's making money on this. And all of our analysis shows it's the PBMs. Senator Collins, do you agree? I do. The problem is that the system is rife with conflicts of interest and perverse incentives. When PBMs choose which insulin for an insurer's formulary, they are compensated usually by being paid a percentage of the least list price. So that encourages the manufacturers to have high list price because they want their brand of insulin to be chosen for the insurer to use for its beneficiaries. When you have that kind of disincentive mm -hmm. built into the system, it leads to higher costs. There was a provision also that was included by PBMs in the contracts that they had with insurers and pharmacies that were called gag clauses. And it actually prevented a pharmacist from telling a patient, a customer, whether or not it would be cheaper to not use insurance and pay out of pocket. Fortunately, we were able to get that practice banned. But it, I tell you about that it, because it's yet another example of the role that PBMs play in keeping the cost high. So you guys have bipart bipartisan legislation. We have a Republican and a Democrat sitting here. Um, 
Senator Shaheen, what specifically would your bill do to lower the cost? You mentioned a cap. Um, what else? Um, well, again, Senator Collins and I co-chair the Diabetes Caucus. Mm -hmm. Senator Collins was doing that when I got to the Senate, and um, I've been so pleased to be able to join her. And we've been working on this legislation now since 2019. We first we introduced the first iteration of our bill in 2019. We've worked on it since then. Um, it caps those out-of-pocket costs, which, by the way, 25 states have already done. So we know that this is something that people think is a good idea. Um, it also would get rid of some of the requirements for um, for that force people to get um, agreement before they can get um, certain certain health care for their diabetes, which mm. is really important. The name is escaping me of prior authorization. Thank you, prior authorization. See, that's the problem with our health care system. There's <laughs> terms. <laughs> yeah, um, but the other thing it does is it um, expedites the ability to get generics onto the market. Right now, we don't have a generic insulin, which is one of the real challenges. So getting those biosimilars into the market would really help with the list price. And then it addresses the PPMs when it comes to insulin. So Senator Collins, is there a way to ban PBMs? Are you able to do that in your legislation? I don't think we should ban them, but I think their compensation should not be linked to the cost of the drugs that they're recommending. Instead, it should be a flat fee situation. The other thing to know is this market is incredibly concentrated, as Senator Shaheen has mentioned. We have only three major manufacturers of insulin, and the major PBMs are all owned by insurance companies. So to get that benefit to the patient has been really difficult. There's so many perverse incentives that drive up the costs. And uh, Senator Shaheem was mentioning also the need for us to have more biosimilars. Well, finally, in the last year or so, there was a biosimilar, that's the equivalent of a generic for insulin, that was introduced onto the market. Well, guess what? It was way cheaper. It could not get chosen by the PBMs for a, singular, a single formulary but for an insurance company. Hmm. And so what did they do? The company relaunched its biosimilar at a higher price, and then it got chosen. But I think the good news is that we're seeing um, legislation to address some of those PBM um, excesses come out of um, both the Finance Committee and the Help Committee in the Senate. And also, we've seen legislation go through the House Committee as well. So there is bipartisan support to address this issue. What is, why hasn't this passed previously? Why hasn't this idea, anyway, you guys introduced this legislation this year, but why has it been so difficult to, to control the price of drug? What is the challenge that is out there, either internally within the Senate or externally within the industry? Well, I think the pharmaceutical industry has um, a very important 
uh, very important, has a very large lobby on Capitol Hill, and they have been very effective. But I think now people are beginning to understand what the impact of those high drug prices are, and being louder in terms of contacting their senators, their representatives, to say, this is a real problem. There's also a huge cost to the federal government for um, not addressing PBM reform and not addressing the high cost of prescription drugs. And so we could lower the cost of health care. Right now, um, diabetes is one of the most expensive chronic illnesses we have in this country. We have 37 million people who have um, diabetes. And if we could address the high cost of insulin, that would be a huge saver for the federal government. Uh, last year in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, as you already mentioned, there was a cap on insulin at $35. That was for people on Medicare. Um, Senator Collins, you did not vote for that. For I did vote for the cap. Right, but because <laughs> I was going to say, because of all the other things that were in the legislation. Um, so I do want to ask you, though, was that a good start in bringing down the cost of insulin, even though it only is for people on Medicare at this point? It is a good start, but what we should keep in mind is that the people who tend to need insulin as a matter of life and death are a lot of young people in our country who have type 1 diabetes, not type 2 diabetes. And for them, insulin is a matter of life and death. And so there's a lot more work to be done. And that's why I'm so happy with the, our partnership on this issue. You asked earlier about uh, the pushback on it. I think that is changing. Senator Shaheen and I've worked very hard to get more co-sponsors. But what has made the difference is members of Congress are hearing from their constituents. And I remember a recent case where a woman from Maine, a young woman from Maine, came and told me that she had been rationing her insulin because she could not afford it. She had gotten off her insurance uh, plan of her parents, and she was trying to stretch it out. She has type 1 diabetes. Well, guess what? She ended up in the emergency room, almost died. And believe me, not only would that have been horrific and tragic, but it's also a lot more expensive to take care of her in an emergency room than to help her with the cost of insulin. That's right. So we would pay for that emergency room visit, but we wouldn't pay for the prevention that helps keep people out of the hospital. You know, I, I ha also have a personal connection to uh, this issue because my oldest granddaughter has type 1. And she comes from a family that has health insurance, resources, knows how to navigate the system. And I've watched the challenges that they have. So I can only imagine how difficult it is for young women like Senator Collins is talking about and others who don't have that health insurance, don't have that help to navigate the system. And that's what we've got to address. That's what our bill is about. It's trying to ensure that everybody can get that access to insulin, which is, as Senator Collins pointed out, 
life-saving. This is not a case, you know, I, I was meeting with a, a group of advocates who have type one, and one of the things that they said to me, this has been years ago, right after I got elected to the Senate, but they said, you know, I think the problem is we don't look sick. So people don't understand that access to insulin is life and death for us. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. So this is an issue we've got to address from a policy perspective, but also from a personal perspective to make sure that people have access to what they need to live productive lives. You mentioned your granddaughter, uh, Senator Collins. You started the Diabetes Caucus in 1997. I want to ask you about that in a second, but just to follow up, Senator Shaheen, is that why you joined the Diabetes Caucus because of your granddaughter? Can you talk about why this has become so important to you? Well, it is. You know, I, as governor, I also worked on this issue before my before I had my granddaughter and before she got diagnosed, because it's a huge policy issue as well. It's, um, it is one of the most expensive chronic diseases. Um, we pay a lot of money, and we still have people who don't get what they need. And the example that Senator Collins said is an, a really good one. We'll pay to put somebody in the hospital, but we're not going to pay to give them the, the training, the preventive um, information that they need to stay out of the hospital. And that's just a crazy policy that needs to change. And then, of course, when my granddaughter got diagnosed, there was also a very personal reason to do everything I could to try and address this issue. And Senator Collins, for you, why did you create this caucus that is devoted to this issue of diabetes? One of my first constituent meetings when I was elected to the Senate was in early 1997 in my Portland, Maine office. And it was with families who had children with type 1 diabetes. And I'll never forget this little 10-year-old boy looking up at me and saying, Senator Collins, I wish I could just take one day off from having diabetes, my birthday or Christmas. And of course, he never can. And I came back to Washington, and I said to my staff, I want to join the Diabetes Caucus. And they said, there isn't one in the Senate. And I said, well, there is now. And I'll tell you, I've had great people to work with over the years, but none has been more committed than Jean Shaheen. And we've worked in a completely bipartisan way. Diabetes doesn't care if you're a Democrat or Republican or what. And it's been very rewarding to work on the special diabetes program, which provides research dollars and has led to tremendous breakthroughs in the technologies, including continuous glucose monitors, which helps test the blood sugar and avoid the needless blood tests day after day. And so we've seen the difference that technology can make. And um, Jean can tell you about a very exciting development that's yes. happening. I just went to a groundbreaking in August between um, a company called Lanza that um, manufactures pharmaceuticals in New Hampshire and a company called Vertex, which has been in Cambridge. Um, and they are going to produce islet cell therapy, which is 
I believe, going to be a cure for diabetes. They already have one person who has been insulin-free for three years. They are in clinical trials. Hopefully, the FDA will continue to allow them to move forward with those clinical trials. But it's very exciting what's happening there. And so we're hoping to, when, when they finally have the new um, center up with Lanza, we want a tour so we can really see firsthand the difference that that's going to make for people. If they're already in clinical trials, then that timeline must be relatively quick, or no? How far off are we? Well, there have been some challenges with okay. getting the clinical trials. Um, I think they're moving forward Bureaucratic now. challenges or? Yes. 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 Oh, okay. Bureaucratic FDA. challenges from the <laughs> FDA. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, you guys do not have the only legislation addressing insulin on the Hill. There's one also by uh, Senator Warnock and Senator Cassidy, which is also bipartisan. Actually, it's Senator Kennedy. Kennedy. Thank you. Um, so what is theirs compatible? Is their yours better? Um, and you know, what's the progress of moving this forward this year? Well, we've been, we've been meeting with them for some time. Our staffs have been meeting, and we're hoping that we can come to an accommodation where we can get one bill that we can all support. There are other bills as well that are really important. For example, we need patent reform. Uh, we need that generally for uh, prescription drugs. Right now, when a patent expires on a prescription drug, you will often see a company go file a whole bunch of new patents to try to prevent a generic equivalent from coming to the market. We've seen practices where pharmaceutical companies will actually pay the generic manufacturer to delay uh, bringing that new drug to the market. Those are broader than insulin, but they are important as well. And they also drive up the cost of prescription exactly. drugs. Just want to take a step back in the healthcare system, generally speaking. Um, life expectant, we, the Washington, my colleagues at the Post had a big series about life expectancy and how it is declining in the United States. Um, we are one of the richest, the richest country in the world, um, and with declining life expectancies, I know the problem is very complex, and you guys are addressing a part of trying to address a part of it. But are there any thoughts that you have about this issue and what else Congress should do? Yeah, one of the, yeah. one of the biggest reasons for the declining life expectancy over the last few years has been the number of people who have overdosed, the opioid epidemic, and the now fentanyl as part of that has been a huge problem in my state of New Hampshire and throughout the country. And there is much more that we need to do. We need to address China's um, allowing in precursor drugs into the United States that are then precursor chemicals that are used to make fentanyl. We need to address our southern border issues and northern border, for that matter, in terms of um, fentanyl coming across to the United States. And we need to educate um, people about the potential catastrophic impact of using fentanyl and pills, uh, the, the, the look-alike pills that now are out there, um, available on the internet, available in so many places that have fentanyl in them and cause people to overdose. 
is something that we need to make sure people understand. I agree with every word that uh, Jean just said. Uh, let me list three factors. One is definitely the drug crisis. And I think we often focus understandably on the number of deaths through overdoses. In Maine, it was 763 last year. That's so sad. But here's the more startling statistic. There were 10,000 overdoses in the state of Maine, 10,000. So those are people who were saved, and, but that's a huge problem that is affecting the health in this country and lowering our uh, life expectancy. Second, I think we need to put more emphasis on prevention on wellness, on lifestyle factors. And there's more and more research that identifies lifestyle factors as major contributors to diseases. And third, we have a real problem with the shortage of healthcare professionals, particularly in rural states like ours, and particularly behavioral health professionals. So if you're living during COVID, I got a call from a selectman living on an island in Maine. And he said, what are we going to do? We don't have broadband, so we can't do telemedicine. If we take the ferry and drive the hour to the doctor's office, it's closed. So how are we going to get health care? Mm -hmm. And one of the other projects that Senator Shaheen and I have worked on in the infrastructure bill was to bring broadband to all Americans, $65 billion that we negotiated. That's going to help improve our life expectancy because it means no matter where you live, you'll be able to do telemedicine at least. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be very helpful. Um. I want to now switch to a couple news of the day questions. Of course, there's this horrible war happening in Israel, Gaza. Um, Senator Collins, you are a uh, ranking member on the Appropriations Committee, top Republican on the Appropriations Committee, uh, who will help to usher through a supplemental. Um, the Washington Post and others are reporting that it could be up to $100 billion for Ukraine, for Israel, some Taiwan, maybe some southern border money as well. Is that an adequate amount? Is that too much? And at what can you talk about the, the framework of the supplemental at this stage? Well, first of all, I expect that the supplemental is going to be submitted to Congress tomorrow. Okay. And um, I expect to get briefed on it this afternoon. Senator Shaheen is also a key member of the mm -hmm. Appropriations Committee. Our hope, uh, the chair, Patty Murray, and I hope to hold a hearing on the supplemental, perhaps as early as next week. I think that would be very helpful. I do think it will have the four elements that you've described in it, and I think each of those four are critical. And I hope through a hearing uh, that we can answer questions, 
um, find out exactly where the money is going, whether it is the right amount. I have not heard a top line yet, uh, so I don't know that what that will be. But uh, assisting Israel as it confronts the worst terrorist attacks and the greatest number of deaths since the Holocaust is absolutely critical. And a group of us in the coming days are going to be visiting Israel mm -hmm. um, to show our solidarity, solidarity with the Israeli people. Uh, Ukraine, Ukraine is not only the right thing to do, but it's in our self-interest. Uh, the Ukrainians are taking on an adversary of the United States. Russia's brutal, unprovoked war must be countered, and they're doing it with the help of our ammunition and supplies, but no American soldiers are on the ground to help. Um, and then the southern border is out of control. We've got to worry not just about the Ukrainian border, but about our southern border, which, as Jean said, is a thoroughfare for drugs as well being smuggled um, into this country. And finally, sending a strong signal to China that it should not attempt to seize Taiwan is very important as well. Senator Shaheen, um, there was a classified briefing yesterday for all senators about what's happening in Israel. Uh, we have all heard how the president has addressed uh, Israel. He just returned. He's going to address the nation tonight. Do you think that his stance and his tone regarding the conflict has been appropriate? And what do you want him to say tonight? I do. I think he's not only shown the support of the United States for Israel, but also, and this sadly hasn't gotten reported as much or heard as much, I think, he's expressed the concern about what's happening with the Palestinian people and the humanitarian crisis there. And also the need to address, to try and prevent the expansion of hostilities beyond Israel and Gaza and the West Bank. So that there is very real concern at this point that uh, this conflict could spread across the Middle East in ways that um, we have not seen in a very long time. There's also real concern about the potential for um, unrest in cities across the world. If you looked at the demonstrations that have happened in the last 24 hours, um, we've seen tens of thousands of people come out and demonstrate, and there's concern about terror attacks happening. We've seen that in the United States already, um, both anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim. So I think it's very important for the president to help um, calm the situation, to, be, um, to talk about the role that the United States can help play in addressing the violence that we're seeing. We only have, ten, we're have, don't have 10 seconds left, but I'm gonna ask you in 10 seconds, do you think that there should be a ceasefire at this point, Senator Shaheen? I, I think that's gonna have to come from negotiations. Um, if obviously the Israelis need to feel like they have addressed the threat from Hamas, um, 
people, the Palestinians need to feel like there's some humanitarian assistance to help end the, the real suffering there. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's not gonna be for the United States to say whether they can broker a ceasefire or not. The parties have to come to the table to help. Senator Collins, same question very quickly. I generally agree, but I think Israel has to crush Hamas. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you both so much for this wonderful conversation today. I really appreciate it. Senator Shaheen and Senator Collins, thank you. And we will be right back with more. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hello and welcome. I'm Dan Diamond, a national health reporter at The Washington Post. And today we're going to do a checkup on America's healthcare system with two experts who have spent quite a bit of time thinking about how to improve it. First, Dr. Ovik Roy. He trained at Yale Med School. He is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. And then Matt Fiedler. He is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and he formerly served in the Obama administration. Ovik, Matt, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Let's start with the Affordable Care Act. And as we just heard in that video, uh, Matt, um, it, it's been 13 years since the ACA passed. And Matt, you worked in the Obama administration to help implement it. Ovik, you worked for Republicans trying to get rid of the ACA. Given the amount of time that's passed, it has been hard at times to remember what was the healthcare system pre-ACA. So Matt, can you walk us through some of the big changes in patient care pre and post ACA? So when I, one of the thing that, big things that I think is different now is that the you know, number of people who are uninsured in this country is about half what it was um, on the eve um, of the ACA's passage. And <clears throat> most of that change is attributable to the ACA directly. You know, we now have a lot of research that sort of looks at what has that meant for these people's experiences of the healthcare system um, over that time. Um, clear evidence that we've substantial increases in access to care, um, in their sort of exposure to, to large bills when they do seek care. Um, we've also seen that that has translated into, um, in, in, into reductions in mortality. So you know, that's one of the big things we think about with the ACA is the expansion of coverage. Um, you know, I think one thing that does fly below the radar is the cost of the Medicare program is a lot um, smaller than it was um, supposed to be. Um, and uh, the ACA is probably reducing the cost of Medicare by about $100 billion um, a year right now um, relative um, to what it would, would have been without those changes. And, and those are changes that are obviously saving taxpayers a lot, but they're also saving Medicare beneficiaries um, money, both in terms of their, their premiums and their cost sharing. So Ovik, as the Affordable Care Act was being debated in Congress, you started a healthcare blog, The Apothecary, and you wrote, uh, I couldn't find anything to read that I agreed with, so I started writing it myself. <laughs> Do you, it, I hope it is, I just took it yeah. off your website. Um, so <laughs> having, having heard matches recap a bit of the ACA, do you agree with that? prescription of how the ACA has changed. Well, it's care. funny, you know, I was expecting that Matt and I would actually agree on a lot of things, and I expect we, we may as we get, get through this conversation, but I disagree with almost everything he said there in the sense that, you know, when Senator Obama campaigned, we saw some of the grainy video there, but when he campaigned uh, for president, he promised that his health reform plan would reduce the average family's health care bill by $2,500 per family per year. Um, it didn't do that, right? Healthcare has gotten more expensive. The things that we know about healthcare is that yes, more people have health insurance, that's true, 
but healthcare has gotten more expensive. Health insurance has gotten more expensive. Yes, fewer people are going bankrupt due to medical bills because of insurance. That's important. Like, look, I support universal coverage. It's a very important. It's an important policy goal for every American to have health insurance. But health insurance has gotten more expensive. It's eating more and more of people's paychecks. So no, it's not more affordable. And by the way, we're spending an enormous amount as well on health care. And that is driving up the cost. Matt mentioned that uh, Medicare spending per, uh, per person is, is uh, moderating. And that's excellent news. A big driver of that is the advances of Medicare Advantage, the private sector part of Medicare that the Affordable Care Act in certain ways was kind of hostile to. And so a lot of the success in, um, uh, in greater cost effectiveness in the Medicare program is driven by things that, uh, that the Affordable Care Act was hostile to. Mm. Matt, any response to that? Yeah, so let's, let's start with the Medicare program and we can circle back to the private market. You know, I think the evidence we have, frankly, is the Medicare Advantage um, is not actually saving money for the Medicare program. Um, I, best estimates are to cover the same person, probably cost 15 to 20% more um, in um, in Medicare Advantage relative to covering them in traditional Medicare. Now, what's interesting is I think what is true is there are respects in which Medicare Advantage plans uh, deliver care more efficiently. But the problem is that's all being captured by the plans themselves and maybe to a very small extent by, by beneficiaries rather than saving money for the federal government. Um, I think there's this other question about um, you know, prices in the commercial market. I think it's true that the ACA did more to reduce costs in Medicare than it did um, in the private market. I think there probably have been some spillovers from, from the changes that the ACA made in Medicare that have saved money in the private market. Um, I also think it's true that there's, there's, there's a long um, road to walk in the private market in terms of reducing prices um, and overall spending. Well, I, I disagree with that assessment of the research. The research consistently shows that Medicare Advantage plans on an apples-to-apples -apples basis covering the same benefits as traditional Medicare deliver those benefits at about 10% lower cost. And then you have the fact that a lot of MA plans provide prescription drug coverage. They pres pr provide vision and dental benefits. That's why Bernie Sanders wanted to add those benefits to Medicare at a cost of $300 billion over 10 years because a lot of people out there are recognizing that MA plans are so much more efficient, so much better for patients. A majority of seniors are now enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans because they're so much better. Uh, and more cost effective and cover more benefits. They have out-of-pocket caps. You know, you have an out-of-pocket cap with Medicare Advantage plan. You don't with traditional fee-for-service Medicare unless you buy a supplemental Medigap plan that costs you more money. So seniors are voting with their feet. They're voting for private sector-based Medicare coverage. And there's a lesson there, which is that if you actually allow private insurers to compete for patients' business and you structure the market so that they are competing with each other, that can drive down costs, that can increase quality. That's not what we do for employer-based insurance. And that's where health insurance has gotten less and less affordable over time. Maybe we can move past the Medicare Advantage uh, commercial part of this segment. But I, I, I am curious, Matt, because you worked on the ACA, do you feel like in retrospect, could there have been a public option that also would have offered transformational benefits to the health insurance system? So obviously there was a lot of conversation about a public option um, back uh, during the debate over the ACA. You know, listen, I think the advantage uh, of a public option is that it's a mechanism for reducing what are indeed very high prices we see for care um, in the private insurance markets. Um, and that's a reflection of the fact that right, private insurers have to negotiate with healthcare providers. Many markets are very concentrated, and that means that, you know, whether it be a health system or a physician practice, often have a lot of leverage to insist on very high prices for care. Um, I think a public option, be, by bringing the sort of approach to determining prices that we have 
that we use in the Medicare system into private markets could have been a way to substantially reduce prices on the private side. Um, and obviously, it's not the way Congress ultimately went. Maybe one more ACA question for you, Ovik. So Republicans have effectively abandoned efforts to repeal the ACA. Uh, party can't agree on entitlement reform, COVID backlash. It's not motivating voters the way that Ron DeSantis would want. So what is the path forward for Republicans in healthcare? Well, the big problem that Republicans have had is that they, there's a lot of disagreement among uh, the Republican Party and among conservatives uh, who talk about health care and those who don't talk about health care, so what to do. So back in the repeal and replace debate in the 2010s, there were people like myself who were saying we should embrace the cause of universal coverage and show how the private sector could deliver it. That was one end of the spectrum. There were others who said we just need to repeal the ACA and go home. That was a, a school of thought. And then there were people in the middle who were like, well, let's do some things on coverage and you know, kind of have a half measure. That's where basically Paul Ryan ended up, I would argue. And that was a mistake, right? People do care about having the economic security that comes with having insurance that works. That's a really important policy goal that Republicans were mistaken in avoiding. And also not trying to, uh, to not failing to understand that you need 60 votes in the Senate to do proper health reform. You can't do it with just a 50 or 51 Republican Senate, uh, member Senate. So there were a lot of, basically, there was just not a lot of thought about that. A lot of people were more afraid of, what, whether they were going to get primary for not hating Obamacare enough instead of actually having a health reform plan that works for patients. And there's a, you could see some of that on the Democratic side in the sense that there's a single-payer uh, crowd versus the public option crowd, things like that. But Democrats in the ACA context were united in saying, look, we may have our disagreements about how to achieve universal coverage, but we all agree that universal coverage is a goal. And they were able to kind of compromise on that. Republicans were not mature enough in their healthcare thinking, I would argue, to, to make similar compromises or agreements among themselves. And that's still true today. There is not a consensus among conservatives or Republicans as to what to do. And obviously, I do my part to convince them to see it my way. When you're thinking about the Republicans who are leading on health policy, are there any political figures who come to mind? Absolutely. So actually, one of the things that's, uh, that's been interesting to observe, so uh, I'll, I'll rem I remember uh, in, in 2017, the, the repeal and replace effort had, had already started to founder. You had the John McCain thumbs down moment that we all remember uh, who were following that debate. And uh, a, a little known congressman at the time uh, asked to meet with me and said, you know, Ovik, I want to come up with a bipartisan health reform plan. And I said, well, sir, that's hard to do. Are you really sure you want to take that on? He said, yeah, I really want to take that on. And I said to him, well, here's my suggestion if you were to come up with a health reform plan that the Congressional Budget Office would score as increasing the number of people with health insurance and reducing the deficit without increasing taxes, so reducing spending on health care, reducing the cost curve, bending the cost curve, if you could do those two things at the same time, that's basically your shot at something that could theoretically get bipartisan support, because no Democrat is going to support broad-based health reform that reduces the number of people with health insurance, and no Republican is going to support a massive uh, explosion in entitlements, at least in, in theory. And so if you can accomplish those two things, then you've got something. You at least got a chance. I'm still waiting on the name of this lawmaker. Uh, his name is Bruce Westerman uh, from Arkansas, who's now the uh, chair chairman of the, um, the um, Natural Resources Committee. So not on the, the committees of jurisdiction, he's not on ways and means, he's not on energy and commerce, but he said to me, uh, you know, okay, I like that, I love that actually. C can, you, can, you, uh, can you provide us with some technical advice? So we took our, the, the, the health reform plan that we'd put together, the Foundation for Research on Equal to Opportunity, sent it to his staff uh, and some other people who are interested in this project. And now there's this bill called the Fair Care Act that's been introduced in both the House and the Senate. The lead sponsor in the Senate is Mike Braun of Indiana. 
uh, uh, one of the other leading co-sponsors in the in the House is uh, Jim Banks, who was uh, in the last Congress the head of the Republican Study Committee, which many of you who follow Hill stuff know is a pretty influential organization within the House Republican Caucus. And so there is this bill called the Fair Care Act, which we've modeled, has not been scored by the CBA, but we've modeled as increasing coverage by 9 million people over 10 years uh, and reducing both taxes and spending on healthcare by bending the cost curve, by reducing the cost of healthcare, drugs, hospital care, physician care, et cetera, through a lot of you know small bore things that if you add them up, things like site neutral payment and other things that many of you might be familiar with, that add up to significant savings over time. So Congressman Westerman, Banks, Senator Braun, some, some figures in your mind who are leaders on the Republican side. Matt, you are headed to Congress later today I, to testify in a hearing on, on patient care. Um, I assume that's why there are so many news trucks on Capitol Hill today. Uh, hey, for, I'm for sure it's all about me, yes. Yes. Um, you, you could be a speaker candidate if you hang out there long enough. Uh, Honestly, I mean, we just heard, heard Ovik talk about some of the dynamics of doing health reform on the Republican side. Can this broken Congress still do big things on health care? Listen, I don't think there's going to be substantial health care legislation this year. And I, so I think the first real window for, um, f for substantial legislation is, is after the 2024 elections. Um, and I think w exactly what that might look like is obviously going to depend very much on how those elections go. Um, I mean, I think one looming question that's going to be um, facing Congress after the 2024 elections is, um, you know, d during this administration, there's some expansion in the ACA subsidies, um, first in the American Rescue Plan and then extended the Inflation, Redu uh, Inflation Reduction Act. That only goes through 2025. What happens with those afterwards? Um, I think another big looming question, again, you know, if there's, if there's Democratic control in 2025, one of the big things the ACA did, obviously, was expanding Medicaid. Um, giving states the option to expand Medicaid to, to low-income adults. There are still 10 states that haven't done that, um, and there are millions of people in those states who are uninsured because of that. So there was an effort um, over the last couple years um, to try to figure out whether there's a federal way of plugging that gap. Um, I think that's going to be another sort of looming, looming healthcare issue. And then I think there are some issues on the cost side. I think one place where, where we probably agree is um, site-neutral payment. Um, so this is an issue where Medicare will pay a lot more for the same service in a hospital outpatient department <clears throat> versus in a physician's office. Doesn't make a lot of sense um, from the perspective of, um, of, of Medicare's balance sheet or from beneficiaries' costs. Doesn't do much to improve access and probably drives um, sort of hospital acquisition of physician practices that reduces competition in the private market and drives, drives up prices there. I think there are a variety of other um, ways we might think about tackling costs, but you know that would be the conversation that one would hope we would be having in 2025. We'll see if that materializes. I, I, I want to ask a quick follow-up to sort of the counterpart to the question I asked Ovik about Republicans. The Biden administration, is it building a record of moving the ball on patient care when President Biden and his team campaign next year? Will they be able to point to health care achievements? So, I mean, I think the Inflation Reduction Act had a couple of big healthcare achievements, right? Um, the negotiating prices uh, for prescription drugs is a big step forward, and obviously that's a big part of the reason that the Inflation Reduction Act was, was scored as reducing the deficit, is that Medicare is going to be spending um, much less on prescription drugs than it would have been under, under current law, and some of that will accrue to the government, and then some of that will accrue, um, uh, accrue to beneficiaries as lower premiums or cost sharing. Um, 
the and then you know alluded to this sort of expansion in the ACA marketplace subsidies, which is both reducing premiums for people who are already enrolled, but um, does seem to be driving a fairly substantial um, increase in enrollment in the marketplaces, um, and is going to mean translate into a sort of a lower um, uninsured rate over time. Ovik, when thinking about what's not working in America, life expectancy. America spends far more than peer nations, suffers poorer outcomes. Our team at the Washington Post has just done a series on life expectancy. How do you explain the paradox around life expectancy and other outcomes? Boy, we could spend a whole day on, on this topic. Um, one way for you me You have two to, minutes. One way, one way for me to answer this is uh, it's, it's a total mistake to associate health insurance with life expectancy. The, those two things do not necessarily connect together in general, don't, because there's so many factors that go into life expectancy that have nothing to do with whether or not you have health insurance. Like what? Um, like uh, uh, your community, your nutrition, your economic prosperity. So the biggest correlator to life expectancy around the world is GDP per capita. Now, uh, Atul Gawande in The New Yorker had a beautiful piece that everyone should read Costa about, about Costa Rica and how they have greater life expectancy in the U.S., obviously a much poorer country than the U.S., and they did some really interesting things around just basic public health, basic kind of uh, not just health care but social care that they were able to achieve at a very low cost and have incredible uh, results and in, in, in growth in their life expectancy statistics. And obviously we've got the, the deaths of despair issue, we've got opioids, we've got a lot of the, you know, the, the crisis of loneliness in America. There are a lot of things that affect life expectancy that have nothing to do with health insurance. And I think uh, this was a classic example of over-promising and under-delivering the, the claim that, uh, that we, the ACA would lead to greater life expectancy. Yes, it's very important for financial security. Uh, because of bankruptcy due to medical bills. But that's a very different situation than life expectancy. So I don't agree with that in part and disagree with part. Um, I mean, I actually think we have very clear evidence that expanding coverage does reduce mortality. So we've had very clear evidence from comparing experiences in states that have expanded versus haven't expanded Medicaid. There was also this interesting um, experiment that happened um, where the uh, uh, late in the, the Obama administration, actually, the IRS sent out letters to some people saying, you paid the individual mandate penalty. We think you're eligible for subsidized coverage. Um, and they send that randomly to some people and random, not, not to others. <clears throat> the people who got the letters took up coverage. And then they looked at these people. Well, did, you know, um, did the group that get the letter um, uh, stay alive at higher rates than the people who didn't get the letter? And they found, yes, it did. And so I think we have very natural experiment. Yeah, yeah, great national experiment. I think we have very clear evidence that um, expanding coverage um, does um, reduce mortality and increase life expectancy. That's, that said, I completely agree. There are a lot of other factors that enter into life expectancy that are probably more important, in fact, than health insurance and even the healthcare, what the healthcare system is doing. Um, but I also, I don't think we should, we should go so far to, to say that, that health insurance doesn't um, matter for health outcomes or for mortality at all. We have a, a project we do every year called the World Index of Healthcare Innovation. And we look at the top 32 countries by GDP per capita that have a population over 5 million and compare them on patient outcomes, patient choice, uh, science and technology, and fiscal sustainability. And in our survey of, of the 32 countries, the US, I believe, is ranked, I think, 15th in the most recent one. And the top four or five countries are ones that typically aren't part of the US policy conversation. It's countries like Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands, Australia, Israel. These are the countries that do really well, Ireland, in our, in our, uh, in our analysis. And a lot of it has to do with some of the facts, that, that some of the pieces they, they install to have robust economic growth along with really good healthcare systems and universal coverage. Last question, 20 seconds each. What's one thing you would take from another country 
their health system and bring to ours. Uh, Ovik, you were just talking about foreign powers. Go ahead. Well, uh, the, the, the country that I think does the best job of having the kind of health care system that America should have is Switzerland. Switzerland has a system that you could call Medicare Advantage for All or even maybe Obamacare for All, regulated, individually purchased health insurance that's affordable, far more affordable than the options we have in the United States. But everyone has coverage. The people who need uh, subsidies or help affording that coverage get it. Uh, but you have your choice of doctor. You have your choice of drugs. A lot of pharmaceutical companies like our sponsors here are headquartered in Switzerland. It's a pro-innovation economy. They do almost everything right. Matt? One of the big things other countries do differently um, is how they de determine the prices of healthcare services. There's often much more direct uh, and larger government role in setting those prices. That's basically what we do in Medicare. Um, and we, um, it's not what we do in the private market. And in the private market, we see much higher prices. So I think one of the big questions going forward is, are we going to introduce that larger government role in determining prices um, in the private sector? And, and what are the trade-offs associated with that? Yes, something, something worth watching. This was fascinating. We'll have to come back and do a whole day on life expectancy, as, as promised. But we are out of time for now, so we'll leave it here. Ovik, Matt, thank you so much. Thanks for all you do, Dan. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Good morning, everyone. I'm Kathleen Koch, a longtime Washington correspondent. I think everyone knows that generics have helped dramatically reduce the cost of prescription drugs. But there's another category of medication that really holds huge promise to increasing patient access to the most expensive and often the most effective treatments. Well, here this morning with me uh, to talk about biosimilars and their benefits is Dr. Sonia Osqui. Sonia is vice president and head of U.S. Biosimilars at Sandoz. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me. Sonia, we're here to talk about biosimilars, but just in case those in the audience aren't sure what they are, could you explain them for us? Absolutely. So a biosimilar is an FDA-approved biologic that is pr proven to be as safe and effective as an existing FDA-approved biologic. Now, what is a biologic? So taking a step back, biologics are some of the most complex but most important treatment options, as you said in your opening, uh, to treat some of the most severe and chronic conditions like cancers and different rheumatologic conditions to diabetes and retinal conditions. Um, however, they're, like I said, very complex and they're made from living cells. Okay, so unlike the drugs that most of us take, which are made from chemicals. Depending on the indication, some, some individuals might have prescriptions for biologics already. But the difference here, you could think about the relationship of biosimilars to branded biologics as one of a generic to a branded drug. The differences in terminology really at the root of it comes down to how they're made and the types of substances and molecules. When we talk about generics, which most are familiar with that terminology, generics and branded drugs are made from chemicals. So as you manufacture those products, you could essentially copy and paste and make those products. Because biologics are made from living cells, there's inherent variability, and this goes for all biologics, from producing even batch to batch, because they're made from living cells. So essentially the best you could do as you create these products is create highly similar versions, hence the terminology hence the of, a, of a biosimilar. So how long have they been around and why are they important? Well, why they're important, let me first and foremost say that biologics, as you mentioned, these are some of the most expensive drug categories, not just in the US, 
in the world. Um, and biosimilars in the US, we had our first FDA approved biosimilar in 2015, which was a Sandoz supportive care agent in the oncology space. But the approval pathway for biosimilars was really as part of the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act, which was implemented in 2010 as part of the Affordable Care Act. And so since that's been implemented, today in the US there are over 40 FDA approved biosimilars with over 35 of them on the market. So we're actually gonna be coming up on soon the 15 year anniversary of this act, right? That Congress passed creating uh, biosimilars. So are they really, are they making the difference? Do you think that they were intended to? I absolutely believe they are making a difference and there's some strong statistics out there. However, I'll say there's much more opportunity to be realized. So the promise and the hope and you know, everything we're talking about with biosimilars is that you bring increased competition to some of these most costly and critical treatment options, therefore lowering costs and enhancing patient accessibility and affordability to these treatments. Thus far, we know since 2015, biosimilars have delivered more than $23 billion in savings. And if we go to more specific example in the oncology space, in oncology, biosimilars have provided more than $3.5 billion in savings to patients and cut drug spending in half. So that's why I say these are, these are meaningful statistics to say they are doing what they're intended to do. However, we have so much more opportunity to realize the, the savings with biosimilars. Um, there's estimates to say that aggregate savings for biosimilars could exceed $133 billion by 2025. So we need to make sure we overcome any type of barriers or components in our US healthcare delivery system that could slow down the adoption of these agents. So over the um, last four years, Sandoz has nearly tripled, tripled the number of biosimilars that it has in development. So why is the market growing so quickly right now? Well, from a Sandoz perspective, we, Sandoz is one of the global leaders for biosimilars and generics. So we are highly committed and hyper-focused to bringing these treatment options to patients. Um, as we look at the investment over the years, it's really as we, we associate it to the exclusivity periods that end for these originator or branded products, which then open up the door for biosimilar competition to come in. However, I'll say overall, we are just scratching the surface. Yes, we're seeing growth and some meaningful momentum and biosimilars coming to market, but we are truly just scratching the surface of the opportunities. And, and if you take a step back, US is not the leader of having biosimilars to market first. Um, Europe. Correct, so back in 2006, we had our first biosimilar approved in the world in Europe. So we are catching up, uh, but significant opportunity remains. What are the barriers to uptake and, uptake and why are we running behind the rest of the world? That's a good question and there's a, there's a list. So, <laughs> so I will focus on maybe the a top few that come to mind, but before I do that, I will say the one thing uh, that we cannot do for the US biosimilar market as we talk about it is generalize the experience across all products. Depending on the treatment type, the therapeutic area, the site of care it's given, even the reimbursement model associated with it, there's different barriers and different scales of barriers in those dynamics. However, since 2015, we've certainly seen some themes. So if I start off one of the key barriers to adoption that still remains in the US is around simply awareness and familiarity with biosimilars. Like we started off here today defining what a biosimilar is, I would say that's not uncommon to do even with a healthcare stakeholder environment. Um, and lack of familiarity and 
awareness of biosimilars does create a barrier to adoption because sometimes you think providers might feel more hesitant or there's not as much clinical confidence in utilizing these agents, um, which then of course trickles down to patient experience. Patients often lean on their providers to inform. So if there's hesitation there, patients might not feel comfortable and, and, and there's basically a trickle effect. Now, didn't Congress though pass a, <clears throat> a law, I think it was in 2021, the Advancing Education on Biosimilars Act of, in, in that year? Has that not helped? And, and then the FDA did a big campaign. It is. So these are, in my eyes, meaningful steps to tackling this challenge. And it's great to see bipartisan recognition through that legislation that this is an issue that we need to tackle. And it really is creating barriers. Uh, and it's not just around what is a biosimilar, but understanding the regulatory approval pathway to bring biosimilars to market. It's understanding regulatory terminology like interchangeability, which is unique to the U.S. and ultimately allows pharmacist level substitution per state laws but there's misperceptions around these. So seeing the efforts to tackle it, yes, they're meaningful. And to your point, FDA has done a, a great job and they continue to develop more and more material to help the education process that could be provider facing or patient facing. But really this material and these efforts are only as good as they are used. We need an activated stakeholder audience and multi-stakeholders. You think about anybody who's involved in the patient journey from physicians, pharmacists, nurses, caregivers, there's this broader need to develop this education level of comfort so we can remove the barrier associated with potential knowledge gaps. So are there any policy mechanisms or levers, anything that can be done to help overcome some of those obstacles? Now, I don't know if you ran through all the ones that are, that are really standing out there right now. Well, there, there's more, <laughs> given the time, but policy and various levers, which in my mind, I think of um, activated different stakeholder groups contributing to, to overcoming barriers, that's key. We need these to occur. Um, so policies that help tackle some of the misaligned incentives that we heard Senator Collins and Senator um, Shaheen talk about, which is spot on. We need to make sure that the U.S. healthcare delivery model is supportive of lower cost, high quality treatment uh, options and the incentives are in place to support the utilization. Another barrier, and this might sound silly, is uh, a barrier to biosimilar adoption. It's when you don't have them. And what I mean by that is biologics in the U.S., the originator or innovator biologics, are granted 12 years of market exclusivity in the U.S. However, what has happened and does happen is that exclusivity period can be extended quite a bit based on additional patents that are applied to that treatment, which then further delays competition from biosimilars from entering the market. So you asked about legislation. Another great bipartisan legislation uh, that was passed is called the Ensuring Innovation Act. And that was the intention around that is to ensure that any additional exclusivity period granted to a product is on the basis of true innovation and not a means to delay competition further. So again, these types of activities are gonna be important that we shed light, have focused attention towards so we could bring products to market sooner, have a supportive healthcare delivery model that incentivizes the use of these so we can maximize the potential associated with biosimilars. So if we're successful in, in overcoming some of these barriers, then how many patients could potentially benefit? Well, it's, it's a moving target because the number and potential continues to grow. However, there's estimates revealing that more than 1.2 additional 1.2 million patients 
could access biologics through increased competition with biosimilars. So it's not even just about the affordability and accessibility of these treatments, but it's around expanding access. And in some cases, having the ability to have patients access these treatments sooner in their treatment paradigm, where sometimes you may have to try one or two agents that may be less costly before you get a biologic, this could help bring that up sooner in that treatment journey. And what are the implications if we don't have greater success with these? I, I was reading about in, with some biosimilars, uh, or some biologics, I should say, one in four patients are rationing their medication. Yeah, it's a, it's a painful statistic, and I'll say personally, I think we would all agree, nobody should be deciding between buying groceries for the week or picking up their medication. So to, to me, biosimilars are one of the most obvious answers to tackling drug pricing challenges and the healthcare expenditure in the U.S. Naturally, bringing healthy competition to the market can lower those costs and help enhance affordability and accessibility. So they play a critical role to tackling these challenges where patients may have to ration their treatments. When you look down the road at the market, the biosimilar market uh, in the U.S., how does it look, say, in the next five, ten years? Well, it's a, it's a good crystal ball question. And I will say, personally, I've, I've really de dedicated nearly the past ten years of my career to this space because I feel passionate about them. Uh, and I firmly believe in what they deliver. Uh, and so in five to ten years, I absolutely expect to see more biosimilars to come to market where we expand even to more additional therapeutic areas than where we have today. Um, for example, just this year, we had our first FDA-approved biosimilar in the neurology space to treat multiple sclerosis. And so we want to see more and more treatments coming out in, in different therapeutic areas where we could have that benefit and touch more patients. I'll also say in five to ten years, I also hope that we get closer to where people are familiar with generic terminology that biosimilars doesn't feel as foreign too. You kind of understand it when it comes up. Um, but I'll say another component about biosimilars that really excites me, and this isn't directly from, I would say, about biosimilars, but as a result of biosimilar competition. In the next five to 10 years, I hope we continue to see even more innovative or those originator biologics coming to market. If we take a step back and remind ourselves, biosimilars, as we talk about the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act, was that pathway uh, to bring biosimilars to market. Innovation is in the title. So not only is this around bringing competition, lowering costs, enhancing affordability and accessibility, it is about freeing up the healthcare dollar that's been consumed by biologics over more than a decade so we can then reinvest in the next generation of treatments and innovative therapies. I mean, I personally would love to see us go from disease-modifying and, and, and supportive care agents and get closer to curative treatments. And that is the cycle that we get by bringing healthy competition with biosimilars to market. You're so passionate. If anyone watching <laughs> has, has seized on that passion and wants to do their part to help uh, lower some of these roadblocks, so what could they do? Well, first and foremost, I would say being here and engaged in the discussion is a meaningful step. Okay. So thank you all for, for your engagement. But I encourage everybody to, to continue to learn more, not just what these products are, but how they could play a pivotal role in solving our healthcare challenges with drug expenditure, um, supporting policies that tackle some of those misaligned incentives, uh, and making sure we can have a healthy competitive market so biosimilars have the rightful place in the U.S. market are really meaningful steps to supporting uh, the opportunities with these agents. Any closing thoughts? Well, I would just say this is, we have so much potential with these agents and it, it, it's, it takes multi-stakeholder efforts. This is not the job of the FDA, of life science companies, politicians, it's not one stakeholder group. And we really need activation of, of all 
parties that touch healthcare, which we're all impacted by it, uh, to support these agents and, and bring the potential to market sooner in a more meaningful manner. And I guess in particular for these types of medication, because they do seem to treat these most serious illnesses, cancers and others. That's right, that's right. I mean, this is a, it's a sensitive patient population oftentimes that are on these biologics. And you see a lot of patients more and more empowered these days that want to know what medicine they're taking and they want to understand them. So I support that and it's leveraging those educational materials like from when the FDA put out. So patients feel equipped to have that conversation and providers do as well and, and anybody else in that healthcare uh, world that we have. Dr. Sonia Oskwe, thank you so much for just all the information helping us better understand this really important category of medication. Um, and if any of you would like to chime in, you can tweet hashtag post live and, uh, and share your opinion. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello, I'm Francis Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. And I am delighted to be joined this morning by Dr. Davis Liu, who is the chief medical officer at Curi, which is an AI-driven telehealth startup, which has been around since 2017. Dr. Liu, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thanks for having me today. I'm thrilled to be here. Good. So I introduced you as the chief medical officer, but you're a physician, a primary care physician. Tell me what the field looks like. What's the day-to-day -day work of primary care? And how broad is primary care? Where does it fit in our health system? Yeah, you know, first of all, I'm really reflecting that 30 years ago at this time, I actually was in medical school as a first year, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Right. I'm the only person in my family is a doctor, so it was at the time they were telling us about primary care is the future, and we should be thinking about primary care, and so I actually uh, graduated as a family medicine doctor. And, and, and it's disheartening to read your article recently, but yet we've seen these cracks in primary care of um, the importance of a restriction. I'm going to just there. So we've been writing about primary care and the importance, the centrality of it, it to, to, to health care more generally. And this has changed in your 30 years. Yes. Um, it, it, as the, the challenges we have are outlined with fewer people wanting to go into health care. Um, people are retiring from health care the pandemic. Our life expectancy is dropping uh, compared to other countries in the world. Um, first time in many decades. And so as I look to the future, I, I worry about what's possible for, for healthcare, and hence the reason I'm at Cure Eyes to figure out how we use technology thoughtfully to bring patients the care they need at the cost they can afford. So just step back a little bit for a second before we talk about QRI and technology and explain why primary care is so important for those measures you mentioned, like life expectancy and like general health. Yeah, so to clarify, um, What's most important about primary care is the longevity and relationship with patients over a period of time. Looking so at things, continuity, continuity care. care, prevention. We're right. talking about diabetes care, right. getting okay. vaccinated, blood pressure okay. control, okay. and then and then how how most countries have it um, correctly in the United States has more um, um, specialty care instead. And mm -hmm. so the reason it's important for communities is that they find their better quality, better outcome at lower cost. And the things that we often dread about here in the States uh, can be completely avoided with a strong primary care workforce. So you started this work 30 years ago, and now we're seeing, and we have been seeing, a decline in the number of physicians going into primary care. And it's pretty dramatic. It's been exacerbated by the pandemic. But what factors do you think are driving that decline of interest in primary care among Yes. So um, we know that, unfortunately, for a regular panel of 2,500 patients, the amount of work a primary care doctor would have to do is 26.7 hours per day of just 20, care. Whoa. Okay. Say that again. 26.7. Okay. 
uh, hours per day. That's yes. preventive care, outreach, care coordination, documentation, which has gotten a lot worse since the implementation of electronic medical records. Right. And as, 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 um, as many people know, that it hasn't changed. The actual experience of seeing a doctor hasn't changed much from 30 years ago. You still have to make an appointment on the phone. You right. still may have to wait for a fax to come in for your doctor. Right. You may have to um, get still, you can't even log into a, a patient portal. In some places you can, some places you still have to wait for a letter in the mail and take your prescriptions by hand. So although those burdens haven't changed, yet the expectations are higher than ever. And I think the um, reimbursement's gotten a lot less. And then right. medical students have higher debt than ever, so they're more and more attracted to um, specialty care. So that reimbursement part of the equation, uh, we have such a, a strong fee-for-service model here. Is that a problem particularly for primary care as opposed to neurology or uh, oncology or almost any specialty I could name? Absolutely. So, you know, primary care is very much a cognitive specialty. So you have to really do a lot of things. So again, a, cogni a cognitive specialty. Huh. So unlike okay. a procedure is like maybe orthopedic surgeon who does hip replacements or other right. uh, specialty cares like general um, gastroenterologist, um, primary care is a cognitive specialty. So you can't really see the benefits directly. And yet longer term, as we all know, uh, patients live longer, communities are healthier with that uh, strong bond with clinicians or a period of time or their primary care doctors. And so that is the challenge where uh, medical student debt's much higher, reimbursement's better for specialty care. And also I think the experience of medical students these days than 30 years ago, uh, because there are so many more specialists in the United States, uh, they actually don't see what a true robust primary care practice might look like in the 21st century. So I think all these factors make right. it less likely. So now we have this immensely shifting market. We have um, CVS buying Oak Street Health, Amazon moving into the market, your own company, which is an AI-driven uh, company. And it brings up all these market forces um, in an area that needs to uh, look after everybody, essentially, in the country. Do you, are you concerned about this private investment in primary care? And what's the role of government, in your view, uh, going ahead? So I think we should always look at any sort of new innovators, whether it's private or, or government or public, uh, with uh, thoughtfulness. Um, so I am concerned, as anyone else would be, but also thoughtful about what they can do. Because certainly, it's been 30 years I've been practicing, and I haven't seen any significant movement in primary care. Right. Um, I think, uh, and at least in our case in Kirai, we think about how we use technology thoughtfully to give patients a convenient experience using AI to superpower our patient care teams to provide the most personalized experience that they can have that's thoughtful and engaging. Um, and so I think time will tell, I think, yeah. to, to see. Um, but I don't think primary care is as simple as having a, a private company just kind of say, we'll do it better. I think the fundamental things we raised earlier have to be addressed. And I think through technology and officially artificial intelligence will help do that. So I got a call last night from somebody I know who's an ER doctor. And mm -hmm. he said, I was talking about talking to you and the story I'd written earlier this week. And, and he said to me, you know, there was a huge amount of uh, venture capital investment in EDs at, at some point. And then he said, you know, and, and one went belly up and what happens to the patient care after that? Is that something you're concerned about in primary care that, you know, people get invested in companies and if the company fails, where's your primary care physician? Where's your primary care more broadly? Well, I think I'd step back and take a look at some other things. I mean, we see hospital systems closing in the United States, right? right. We see people retiring, yeah. uh, doctors retiring. Right. I see articles in the Washington Post and others that talk about, I've had my primary care doctor for 20 years and right. now she's retired. Or gone into concierge or whatever. 
not affordable. Um, yeah. There's no one available for months. Right. Uh, my parents live in New York um, and they've just moved from Connecticut and I have to find them primary care doctors and there's a huge waiting list. I think the next available is like in six months. So, yeah, so, so I don't think it's a uh, private equity versus venture capital versus government right. or public. I think the point is there's a crisis right. and there, if we don't fundamentally think differently how we do primary care, no matter who's doing it, right. I think that's where we'll probably fall and, short. And of course in this country so much innovation comes from the private sector, right? I mean, yeah, yes, and so I think what's really attracted to me out of my, my different careers, both at Kaiser Permente and then previously at Lemonade Health, a direct consumer uh, telehealth company, what interested me about Kirai the most is actually for the first time we're seeing a technology used to actually augment the doctor-patient relationship, to really make doctors an, a more efficient and bring their true empathetic selves to an, a, every patient encounter, as opposed to be burdened with the administrative things that they have to do today. So that's what makes me maybe optimistic about what's possible in the future. So I, of course, went on your site, Fourteen ninety nine, I think, a month. Yes. Um, it offers me medical access to my doctor twenty four seven. I didn't get very deep into it, but I realized I could. There were these little avatars. It felt a little bit as if I might be trying on shoes or buying a car, and I haven't tried it yet for my primary care. But tell me how that works. The twenty four seven appeal is very, very attractive. But am I getting advice from a doctor or an AI driven bot? Yes, it's great. So um, first of all, anyone's welcome to download our app at Curai Health. It's and very beautifully done. It is very beautifully <laughs> done because we think about healthcare in a different way at Curai. We think about you have convenience and ease and everything else part of your lives except in healthcare. And that shouldn't be the case. So we think right. thoughtfully about how do you do an engaging, personalized, uh, consistent experience at scale? Because mm -hmm. one of our mission goals is really to provide healthcare at scale, improved access at lower cost. Um, you start logging in, you set up an account, and then you just tell us why you're there, as you would in a regular doctor's office. Right. The difference is you use uh, messaging, and initially the, uh, our uh, software allows an intake to get a patient history yeah. and, and gets a summary for us, and then you actually talk to a doctor. In fact, one of the thing, core principles we believe in is artificial intelligence is a superpower for our clinicians, but we always want a human in the loop, so we have the clinical expertise and clinical oversight as part of that to make sure that when the patient leaves our visit that she or he gets the information they need. And what happens to the information I put into that system? Yeah, so like any other uh, healthcare entity, we think uh, strongly about privacy and security, much like HIPAA, so we abide by that. And in certain uh, health, uh, health payers and health systems we work with and partner with, they also abide by HIPAA, so we take privacy and security very seriously, as you would expect from your regular right. doctor's office. Um, tell me about growth. The company's been there since 2017, and you've been there for a year, I think. And of course, the pandemic probably affected things, but what have you seen in terms of growth in this market? Yeah, so Curai's been around since 2017 with a really belief that um, technology and particularly artificial intelligence can actually scale expertise uh, and done in a thoughtful way can actually improve access and care. And so what we've learned over the last few years is that not only has the new lang large language models AI can actually move us even forward more quickly, that there's a real need out there. Hmm. Um, and so um, I think uh, our growth is, looks uh, very optimistic. Um, I think, unfortunately, there's a real need in this country, and I think that's the way to solve it because what we've learned is patients actually like it when they have access to care when and when they want it. An example we have we were really proud of is a woman who's actually uh, with her partner as a truck driver was able to get her blood pressure controlled through us uh, through 88 touch points over 85 days. Now, can you imagine 88 touch points with your doctor for 85 days? Now she's on the road, and the only time she actually saw someone in person was to get her medications for blood pressure right. and get her blood drawn. Right. And within three months, her blood pressure is controlled and is able to fit her doctor office visit through her work and her life. 
lots of questions come to my mind, but are doctors embracing this approach? I well, I, I think, you know, it's always interesting that when you talk to doctors about embracing lots of approaches, whether right. you talk about anything. I don't think I can ever get any of my doctor's degree on anything. I, mean, <laughs> I don't mean cure, I just mean in general. Right. Um, but I think for the right people to understand, it's about the patient. Right. It's what does the patient need? People... And how is the best way you can reach out to him or her? Is right. it through text messaging? Is it through telephone? Right. Is it through video? In fact, we know 65% of a lot of things that are done in bricks and mortar today in primary care can be safely handled virtually. Right. So why don't we do that? Right. And so I think, I think for the doctors on our teams, they're very optimistic of the future and those who are really um, like-minded in the sense of healthcare is broken. Right. Primary care is broken. Right. And chronic illness, I mean, this really makes me think about things like diabetes. Um, it, clearly, it's not a good idea if you're suffering from diabetes to see your primary care physician once or twice a year, right? You need ongoing monitoring. Is that the kind of area, this growing burden in this country of chronic disease, where you see, think AI-driven health could really make a difference? Without question. I mean, we, we, we delude ourselves in thinking that a 15-minute office twice a year somehow gets patients the care and touch points they need. When in fact, with artificial intelligence and smart software with a human in the loop where clinicians are overseeing and also provide expertise, you have multiple touch points at time and actually intervene when you need and give patients advice when they need it. Because oftentimes we found that without CareEye, 25% of patients would have gone to urgent care, 20% would have gone and if you go to urgent care or the ER, you're pushing prices up all across the board, right? I mean, it's a very inefficient way of dealing with it. Yeah, I mean, we, we were looking at uh, ER visits cost about $2,500 a visit. Yeah. Right. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of Americans use that as their last source of primary care. Right. And we did the math that 16 patients could get cure for a full year, uh, unlimited virtual text messaging for virtual primary care or urgent care at scale. And so that would actually not only divert ER to what ER really needs, but provide 16 people a whole year of subscriptions. That would be a better outcome for the country as a whole, as well as the clinicians and patients. So you told me your wife's an oncologist and you have kids. Are you signed up? Are they signed up with CureI? Are they using They are CureI? signed up with CureI um, as well. But fortunately, they probably just call mom and dad instead and bypass <laughs> the whole system. I mean, and in, in some ways, as we talked about earlier, I'm the only doctor in my family. And it reflects to me that's a little unfair that I get to do this Right. And yet, all of us should have access to that right. expertise when we need it and when we want it. You, at the beginning of this conversation, talked about how much your career had changed, or the trajectory of, of primary care had changed. Put on the crystal ball, look at the crystal ball a little bit for me, and where do you see big shifts in the healthcare landscape in the next few years? So we talked about, uh, you know, Senator Collins and Senator Shashin talked about, um, you know, getting prices of medications more affordable. Um, we've talked about streamlining our healthcare system and having more uh, universal coverage. Right. But I don't think that's enough. I think unless we really think about how we use software, particularly artificial intelligence at scale thoughtfully, um, to really provide the care we need, instead of trying to artificially do 15-minute office visits, which hasn't changed in 30 years if you think about it. The right. pandemic did have some video and phone, yep. but that hasn't really moved the needle to get really high quality, convenient care to everyone in need. There's still a gap between affordability right. and access. And so I think understanding that will actually allow us to be much more successful going forward. And I think that would be my crystal ball that I'm actually quite optimistic for primary care's future if we enable that particular part of it, because the other pieces alone won't be enough. Dr. Davis Luth, thank you for that optimistic message to finish up with. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.